Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Are you ready for some high adventure? Coming up next on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance recommended. The Mysteries of Dr. John Thorndike. Thorndike is the original fictional forensic detective from the early 1900s, using science to aid the art of detection to bring criminals to justice. This time, presenting The Touchstone, written by R. Austin Freeman, adapted for radio by Heather Elliott. Thank you for making the time to meet with us, Thorndike and Jervis. I'll just stay for a cup of tea and give you an outline of the case. Then I must run off to another engagement and leave Mr. Crowhurst here to fill in the details. William Crowhurst, pleased to meet you, Dr. Thorndike. Dr. Jervis, Marchmont has great many good things to say about your work. I might add that this is a forlorn hope coming here. I have brought the case to you, but haven't the slightest expectation you'll be able to help. Oh, let us hear the particulars. Forlorn hope has at least the stimulating quality of difficulty. The day before yesterday, at a quarter to two in the afternoon, Mr. James Harewood executed a will at his house in Burbridge, which is about two miles from Wellsbury. There were four present, two of his servants, who signed as witnesses, and the two principal beneficiaries. Good, thank you. You two may leave and I'll finish up with Baxfield and Crowhurst. What have you got for us, Uncle? Sign the will, please. You've covered the terms. I want to know what I'm signing. Sign it without knowing what you're getting or get nothing. Crowhurst? Here. Very good. Thank you, gentlemen. I've done what I see fit for both of you, whether you feel that way or not. What have you done, Uncle? What did I just sign? Arthur, you're a good hard worker with many talents. The will has the specifics, but I am leaving you a thousand pounds for the purpose of buying a partnership or to start your own factory. You've done well by yourself in the felt hat manufacturing trade. I'm proud of that. What does he get? Why haven't I gotten more? William has been a dear friend for several years, and I'm under some obligations to you. As you know, you'll receive everything else of the estate. I've also appointed you executor and residuary legatee. You can't be serious. I am. And if you'll excuse me, I'd like to go around to Wellsbury and drop the will off with my lawyer. Neighbors saw Mr. Harewood along the footpath a few minutes later. That was the last time he was seen alive. When Harewood didn't return home that evening, his housekeeper called the police. A search party was organized to explore the wood at first light. They found him at the bottom of an old chalk pit. Dead! fractured skull and dislocated neck, according to the coroner. How he came by these injuries is not yet known, but the body had been robbed of all valuables, including his watch, a diamond ring, and both wallet and the will inside it. Naturally, there is strong suspicion he was murdered. At present, my concern is the will, which has disappeared and presumably been carried away by the thief. It is almost certainly destroyed by this time. 
Ah, uh, that does seem probable, but what do you want from me? You, you haven't come for a legal opinion. No, I'm pretty clear about the legal position. I shall claim to have the testator's wishes carried out insofar as they are known, but I am doubtful what view the court will take. They may decide the entire estate is to go to Baxfield, as he is the next of kin. There was no previous will, and the exact contents of this will are unknown. So, what do you want me to do? We're asking you to do the impossible, although we don't really expect you to succeed. We want to recover the will. If the will has been destroyed, it can't be recovered. Well, the matter is worth investigating, and if you wish me to look into it, I certainly will. Thank you, Thorndyke. I expect nothing. At least I tell myself that I do. But I can now feel everything that is possible will be done. Now I must be off. Crowhurst can give you any details you want. What do you suppose Baxfield will do if the will is irretrievably lost? Will he press his claim as next of kin? I should say yes. He's a businessman, and his natural claims are greater than mine. He's not likely to refuse what the law assigns as his right. Personally, I think he felt unfairly treated in the property split. Was there uh, any reason for this particular division of the estate? Uh, I think the main reason was Baxfield's tendency to gamble. He's lost quite a lot of money backing horses. A careful, thrifty man, like James Harewood, doesn't care to leave his savings to a gambler. What he did leave him was expressly for the purpose of investing in a business. Is he in business now? Well, not his own. He's a foreman or shop manager in a factory just outside of Wellsbury. I believe he's a good worker and knows his trade thoroughly. With regards to Mr. Harewood's death, what are the probabilities of accident? Disregarding the robbery, of course. Very considerable. It's a dangerous place. The footpath runs close besides the edge of a disused chalk pit with overhanging sides, and the edge is masked by bushes and brambles. A careless walker might easily fall over, or be pushed, for that matter. Do you know when the inquest will take place? Yes. I had the subpoena this morning. The inquest will be Friday. I'll get that. A new development, gentlemen. A passenger alighting from the train at Barwood Junction before it stopped, slipped and fell between the train and the platform Monday. Almost certainly the day Harewood was killed. Makes this passenger important to our discussion. I don't know if he is. He was quickly extracted but suffered fatal injuries. He gave his name as Thomas Fletcher but refused to give any address. He died this morning. Police searched his clothing for an address and found in his pocket two handkerchiefs tied together. Inside were five watches, three watch chains, a tie pin, and a number of banknotes. Other pockets contained gold and silver coins and a card from the Wellsbury races, which were held Monday. I presume one of the watches belonged to Mr. Harewood. Harewood's watch? You are correct, Thorndyke. The banknotes have also been identified as a batch handed to Mr. Harewood by the cashier of his bank at Wellsbury last Thursday. His wallet was found empty last night on the railway embankment just outside Wellsbury Station. It doesn't help us much, does it? With the wallet found empty, it's pretty certain that the will has been destroyed. Or merely thrown away, in which case an advertisement offering a substantial reward may bring it to light. Perhaps. The idea isn't a bad one. I'll see to that. I don't believe I have any more information for you gentlemen. 
What do you say about the case, Thorndyke? Will you take it? <laughs> I'm inclined to take it. Jervis and I have a clear day tomorrow. We'll go around to Murbridge and look at the chalk pit, then go to Barwood and see what we can learn about this Fletcher fellow. For such a good walking path, it seems little used. I haven't seen a soul since we left the main road. Based on the maps, we should be close to the chalk pit where Howard's body was found. We'll leave the bicycles against that tree while we take a look around. Good Lord, Christopher! Absolute scandal that a public path should be left in this condition! The chasm has to be thirty feet deep, completely masked from the path. Mere inches from the path at that! It's a wonder there haven't been more deaths here. We'd better go back and find the entrance to the pit. Uh, the first thing is to ascertain exactly where Harewood fell, then we can come back and examine the place from above. We passed a trail down the other way here. Uh, uh, good. Let's go ahead and leave the bicycles here and explore the bottom of the chasm. Actually, why don't you go down and look for traces of the tragedy and I'll, uh, I'll look for footprints up here. Ah, good. There you are, Jervis. What have you found? A large block of white chalk freshly fractured along the top with a significant brownish red stain. Undoubtedly the place he went over. Yes, I, I found a little spot of broken soil up here at the trail. Uh, plenty of footprints on the path, but nothing abnormal. No trampling or uh, signs of a struggle. There's an artificial cave down here. And you can see where the stretcher was placed. I'll go on a little further. See what else you can find down there. Someone's been down here. Smoke blackened ceiling in the cave. Remains of a recent fire. Rabbit bones. Battered tea kettle. Obviously a vagrant's hideaway. Hello? Jervis? You're ways down the path. Are you lying on the ground? I, I want to take an impression. Will you bring up the paraffin and the blow lamp? Oh, and... and Bring that coil of rope I packed. Good heavens, you are lying down. <laughs> a little dirt never hurt me. You see, Jervis, this is a possible way down, and someone has used it quite recently. He climbed down with his face toward the cliff. You can see the clear impression of the toe of a boot in the soil of that projection. You can even make out the shape of an iron toe tip. Uh, did you bring the rope? You're, you're not thinking of going down there. <laughs> the problem is how to get down there to take the impression without dislodging the earth above it. Unless I tie the rope around me and step only on the rocks jutting out. It's hardly worth the risk of a broken neck, John. Probably the footprint of a schoolboy. Uh-huh. It's a man's foot. Most likely no connection to our case, but I want to have it anyway. Any amount of rain would obliterate it and it might prove to be valuable. There's no talking you out of it. This end is secure around my chest, and that end is tied tightly to the tree. Once I get a good footing, pass me down the wax and the blow lamp so I can make an impression. I'll be back up in Jiffy, Christopher. Are you sure? Afraid of heights, are we? I'm afraid you'll fall and break your own neck like it appears Mr. Hargrove did. Nonsense. I have you to watch the rope for me. Ready? I'm going down. Have you got the wax impression ready? I'm just about set. I'll pass up the wax tin and blow lamp. Send me down the field glasses after that. See something? 
There's something further down I can't quite make out. You can't come up here and use the field glasses. Suppose it's something important. It's always something important. Coming down. Thank you, Trips. Was it something important? It might be. Steady the line. I'm going down to that wildflower clump to grab something. Then I'll be right back up. Ready. Okay. Pull a little more. Almost. Ah, there. That wasn't so bad. So what have you gathered at the risk of your neck? Exotic mountain flowers? Ah, just this, Christopher. A cigarette holder? For my part, I wouldn't have risked the neck of a rat for it. What do you expect to learn from it? Oh, Jervis, of course I expect nothing. We're just collecting facts on the chance they may turn out to be relevant. Have we? Here, for instance, we find that a man has descended by this very inconvenient route, within a few yards of where Harewood fell instead of going round to the entrance of the pit. He must have had some reason for adopting this undesirable mode of descent. Possibly he was in a hurry. Perhaps, but probably he belonged to the district, since a stranger would not have known about this shortcut down. Then it seems likely this was his cigarette holder. What leads you to think that? Look over at those vertical scrapes on the chalk. I suspect he slipped and must have nearly fallen. At that moment, he probably dropped the holder. The wildflower clump is directly under the marks of his toes. Why do you suppose he didn't recover the holder? (laughs) Same reason you didn't want me down there. The descent slopes away from the flowers, and he had no trusty Jervis with a stout rope to help him cross the space. If he went down this way because he was hurried, he would not have had time to search the holder. Even if it wasn't his, it might belong to someone else who was here recently. Is there anything that leads you to connect this man to the crime? Nothing but time and place. I'm considering the traces of this man in particular because there are no traces of any other. You said there was a great deal of footprints up here on the path. Indeed there are, but we shan't get much information from them. Uh, The search party has trodden out the important prints. I'd like to go back into the pit and see if we can find where the man with the toe tips went. Shall I bring the wax and blowtorch down with us? Yes. With any luck, we'll need it. I'll look down one side, and you can take the other. I doubt we'll find much in this soft dirt, but... Wait. Is that a footprint? Just one. Uh, A beautiful impression of a whole foot with top tips and heel tips. There's no doubt the robber took off in the direction we suspected. I should like to search this whole area for the will, but we have at the time. Oh, why not? I wrote the constable in Barwood to say we're coming to see the personal effects of the pickpocket, Mr. Fletcher. Well, if it isn't the good Dr. Thorndike and Jervis... Inspector Badger, what brings you out here? Miller got word there was a pickpocket and sent me to find out what I could. Body's in the morgue, but the local constable has Fletcher's clothes and effects in his office. I've just taken a peek. We'd appreciate a few minutes to examine them ourselves. By all means. Neatly laid out on the table, thorough fellow, this constable... Look at the boots, Jervis. Smart but flimsy. Heel is worn down and in need of resoling. Toes and heels don't have tips or nail, except the fastening brads. 
tracing the boots. I should hardly have thought the question of footprints would arise in this case. You can't charge a dead man. <laughs> that does seem to be true. Jervis, can you get the dust tractor set up, please? Of course. What is that contraption? Thorndike will use a little nozzle to suck up dust from the dead man's pocket. I work the pump, and it creates a suction to carry the dust to the little canister. Sucking up dust from a dead man's pocket. Once we've gotten the dust, we'll take a look at it under the microscope and determine its composition. You can do that. <laughs> of course we can. All objects have shapes. Uh, once you know that, you can easily identify all manner of things. Slides are labeled so we know where the dust came from. Once we've got the slides ready and have examined them, you're welcome to look for yourself. That dust is rummy-looking stuff, Dr. Jervis. What'd you find in there? Well, just the usual things one finds in dust. Broken cotton fibers, wool, linen, wood, jute, mineral particles, a few other I'm not familiar with. What's the doctor up to now? I haven't the faintest. According to magnifying lens to read the time, Thorndike. There's no shame in needing glasses. My brother just saw a fellow for some glasses. I can get his card if you're interested. Uh, th th thank you, Inspector Badger. There's really no need. I'm just about finished here. You've collected materials off all five pocket watches. Find anything of use? It's possible. I take it that the watch with the chain attached is Mr. Harewood's? Yes, sir. That helped the local constable identify it. Did you need another slide, Thorndike? Uh, yes, please, uh, Jervis. The key to wind the watch appears to have something inside the barrel. Uh, three slides. Leave them each uh, key, if you would, then inside, middle, and outside. And if the inspector is uh, finished with the microscope. Oh, right. Uh, thanks for letting me look, though I can't see what you see in it. But all the same, I think you're flogging a dead horse. We know who committed the crime, and he's beyond the reach of the law now. <laughs> uh, indeed, but one must earn one's fee, you know. I shall put Fletcher's boots and the five watches in evidence at the inquest tomorrow. P uh, please, leave the labels on the watches. I'll do that. Anything catch your eye from those slides, Jervis? Oh, watch three has some fragments of cat hair, I think. So did the key fluff labeled outside. I'm assuming you made note of that? I did indeed. And it means something to you? Indeed it does. Care to enlighten me? Not yet. I'd prefer to see how tomorrow's inquest proceeds. The jury has seen the body of the deceased. Cause of death was dislocation of the neck, accompanied by the depressed fracture of the skull. The fracture having been produced by the deceased falling on his head. I would like to cross-examine Mr. Baxfield. Very well, Dr. Thorndike. Uh, Mr. Baxfield, at what time did you reach your place of business? Half past four. And at what time did you leave the deceased house? Two o'clock. What is the distance between them? In a direct line, about two miles, but I didn't go direct. I took a round in the country by Lenfield. Ah, that would take you near the race course on the way back. Didn't you go to the races? No, the races were just over when I returned. Huh. Do you smoke much, Mr. Baxfield? A fair amount, over a dozen a day. Uh, 
What brand of cigarettes do you smoke and what kind of tobacco is in it? I make my own from loose tobacco. <clears throat> These questions do not appear to have much connection with the subject of the inquiry, gentlemen. You may take it, sir, that you have a very direct bearing on it. Mr. Baxfield, do you have a cigarette holder? Sometimes I do. And have you lost a cigarette holder lately? I believe I mislaid one a little while ago. Mm-hmm. And where and when did you lose that holder? I, well, I, I, I really couldn't say. Would you say it's lost? It, it may be. I, I, I wouldn't swear to it. It is like the one I lost. Right. I, I am putting this holder in evidence, sir. Very well. Mr. Baxfield, you stated that you did not go to the races. Did you go on the course or inside the grounds at all? I, I, I went in for a minute or two, but I didn't stay. The races were over and there was a rough crowd. All right. Well, while you were in that crowd, Mr. Baxfield, did you have your pocket picked? Yes. I've lost my watch. Is that the watch you lost? I believe it is, but I won't swear to it. Now, Mr. Baxfield, I'm going to ask you a question which you need not answer if you consider that doing so would prejudice your position in any way. The question is, when your pocket was picked, were any articles besides this watch taken from your person? Don't hurry. Consider your answer carefully. I, I don't remember missing anything. Yes, sir, could the witness please be allowed to sit down? Get the witness a chair, officer. I think I'd better tell you exactly what happened and take my chances on the consequences. When I left my uncle's house on Monday, I took a circuit through the field and then entered Gilbert's copse to wait for me. Uncle Jim? Go away, Arthur. You won't change my mind. You left everything to a stranger instead of me. Your own nephew! I have been there for you, and get out of my way, Arthur! No. Why'd you do it? Am I not good enough for your money? I grew up spending summers at your estate. And I know a lot more about you than you think. Gambling? <laughs> not my money. Hey, don't push me. Then get out of my way! Oh. <clears throat> Come on, get out! <clears throat> Ow! Uncle Jim! I pulled the bushes aside and saw him laying on the bottom of the chalk pit, with his head all on one side. I knew the shortcut down. Okay. It was dangerous. That's where I lost the cigarette holder, Dr. Thorndyke. Oh. He's dead. He's dead. Oh, Uncle Jim, what do I do? Blood everywhere. I oh, can't take him home. Think, Arthur, think. Okay, assume someone saw you follow him. Uh, uh, take the will back. Yes, okay. Then no one will know. Oh, but they will know. Crowhurst knows I'll be angry at the way Uncle Jim split the estate. He'll tell them I murdered him. Astounding, Thorndyke. A verdict of death by misadventure. 
congratulations on a solid case. I knew you would find something. You always do. <laughs> Nothing more than an afternoon out hiking. And giving me a scare. An interesting and satisfactory case. Essentially simple, too. The clarity of it all turned on a single illuminating fact. Well, I judge that. Although the illumination of that fact has not yet reached me. Let us first take the general aspect of the case as it was presented by Marchmont. The loss of the will might easily have converted Baxfield from a minor beneficiary to the sole heir. But even had the court agreed to recognize the will, it would have to be guided by the statements of the only two men to whom its provisos were even remotely known. Baxfield could have made any statement he pleased, yes. The loss of the will was greatly to his advantage. What drew your investigation away from Fletcher? He appeared to be a London pickpocket. How did he come to be in this solitary wood, remote from any railroad or even a road? He was traveling to London by train when he was killed. It seemed probable he had also come from London to ply his trade at the races. Yes, yes. The criminological experience shows the habitual criminal as a rigid specialist. Fletcher was a pickpocket. Precisely. The probabilities were against his being the original robber and in favor of his having picked the pocket of the person who robbed Harewood. Baxfield! There was motive, and the pocket picking had apparently taken place at the racecourse. Baxfield is known to frequent racecourses, therefore if Baxfield were the person robbed by Fletcher, then one of the five watches would likely be his. This might have been very difficult to prove, but here came the single illuminating fact. What? Marchmont. What is Baxfield's occupation? A foreman or a manager of a factory that makes felt hats. But how does that turn over a hearing? <laughs> My dear Jervis, Marchmont, don't you see it gave us a touchstone? The very thing that validates our suspicions? Uh, consider now, what is a felt hat? Rabbit hair. The manufacturing process consists of blowing a jet of more or less disintegrated hair onto a revolving steel cone which is moistened by a spray of an alcoholic solution of shellac. A quantity of the finer hairs miss the cone and end up floating about the air. You must have found rabbit hair somewhere. That's your touchstone. Dust on clothing tends to accumulate in the pockets and find its way into the smallest parts of anything carried in those pockets. Thus, if one of the five watches was Baxfield's, it would almost certainly show traces of this particular makeup of dust. You found one that did. In the winding crown, I suppose? Under the bezel, settled on the dial to be precise, having determined that watch number three had rabbit hair dust, I set about to show the absence of the remaining four watches in Fletcher's pocket. Four? Howard's watch was already identified as his. Yes, but remember, it was stolen. There was no rabbit hair on the dial, but I did find a small quantity on the fluff from the key barrel. If the rabbit hair had come from Harewood's pocket, it would have been distributed evenly. You said it wasn't. That it was only in the fluff pulled out of the watch. Which means that bit of fluff came from some other pocket. And the owner of that pocket was almost certainly employed in a felt hat factory and was most probably the owner of... Watch number three. There we go, then. <laughs> there was the cigarette holder. You picked that up at the crime scene from the embankment. You found rabbit hair dust in the cigarette holder? I ran twine through and cleaned it out. The bore was loaded with the stuff. There was a clear suggestion that... 
his was the pocket in which the stolen watch had been carried and that he was also the owner of watch number three. Is there nothing you can't do? All I had was evidence that still needed to be pieced together to prove definitively who this person was. A fresh piece of evidence appeared at the inquest that solved the puzzle. Uh, I suppose you both noticed Maxfield's boots. I've not established the habit of looking at people's feet. Oh, for heaven's sakes. Christopher, you should. Quite interesting. I watched his feet constantly, and when he crossed his legs, I could see he had iron toe tips on his boots. That was what gave me the confidence to push the cross-examination. It was certainly a rather daring cross-examination. Rather irregular, too. Yes, yes it was. Uh, The coroner ought not to have permitted it. If the coroner had disallowed my questions, we should have had to take criminal proceedings against Baxfield. Whereas now that the will has been recovered, I don't believe Mr. Crowhurst will press the issue any further. Thank you, doctors. You've saved two men today. One his inheritance, and the other likely his life. The Mysteries of Dr. John Thorndike, written by R. Austin Freeman, adapted for radio by Heather Elliott. Starring Dave Johnson as Dr. John Thorndike, Roy Nessel as Dr. Christopher Jervis. Also in the cast were Alex Gardapi as Arthur Baxfield, Dave Anderson as Coroner, Brian Grote as Inspector Badger, Reed Thompson as Mr. Marchmont, Joseph McGuire as William Crowhurst, and Jim Galan as James Harewood. I'm your announcer, Ryan Barker. Sound design and dialogue editing, Jay Charles. Directed by Dave Johnson. With financial support from Kim Abbey, members of the RTP Repertory Company, and Soundly, the sound effects platform. You can find this and other series at podcastplayhouse.org or wherever you get your podcasts. This was a Radio Theater Project presentation.